This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Father Patrick Gilger. Uh, He's a Jesuit, an assistant professor of sociology at Loyola University in Chicago, and a contributing editor for Culture at America Magazine. Father Gilger's research lies in the intersection of sociology of religion, political theory, and the study of the secular. Uh, He's an award-winning author, a frequent public speaker, and his writing has appeared in publications such as Vox, Church Life Journal, one of my favorites, La Civita Catholica, and America and Public Seminar. He's also uh, very active, or at least when I was when I was back on X, I guess that's what we're calling it now on Twitter. He's very active on Twitter. I followed him there for a long time. Uh, on, where, where you go by the name Father Patty Gilger, is that your preferred nomenclature? No, and I've, I've gotten used to uh, accepting many modes of address, as I think all priests have to, so... People really do feel comfortable calling me one thing or another, and I feel fine with that. So if Patrick or Patty is fine, Father Gilger is fine. My students will often call me professor instead if they feel a little awkward about, uh, if they're not Catholics and they feel a little awkward about that, that feels great to me too. Right. Well, Father Patrick, I'm I'm so pleased to have you here today. I, I had a, a specific thing in mind to talk to you about. I was introduced to you for the purposes of this show through New City Press all the wonderful folks that are out there. And I watched a talk that you gave on uh, uh, to the Focolare at one of their big events. You gave a keynote address there that was uh, beyond phenomenal. One, probably one of the best that I've heard in a long time. Uh, and I'm going to put a link to that over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls threads. The handle is also at step outside the walls. Uh, and I encourage you to go and listen to that because there's so much good that's there about one of the particular things that you talked about is to that group of people who have a very different mission and focus from your own order, the Jesuits, you talked about you are able to be a good Jesuit because they were able to live fully within their charism and that the difference of charism actually enriched your ability to do what you do. And and likewise, for all of us, as we each live in our charisms, there is... um, Uh, uh, and an accompanying and maybe a a frequency uh, vibration that happens that allows us to harmonize better when we're all doing what we're specifically called to do. Maybe could you touch on that for just a moment, that idea? Yes, certainly. Thank you for the compliments, TL. I appreciate it. The um, the lecture I gave there was, uh, it's a strange beast, right? Where I was trying to really talk to people that I feel like I know well about things, about themselves. So maybe I'll say something about how that came about and then talk a little bit about what the insight there that I seem to have was or that came to me, was given to me was. So, um, you know, I'm a sociologist as well as a priest and social theorist, really. And I studied um, at the place called the New School in New York City. So uh, even though it's about 100 years old now, it's still called the New School, which I appreciate as a, as a Catholic. You know, We still live in this place. Um, and yeah. it's a wonderful place. And I uh, got to learn a bunch of um, many things there. It's a secular institution. And as, as I was doing my dissertation, I started to get interested in the question of how religious identity is preserved or sustained in our secular age. And then because this is a secular institution and I'm studying studying sociology, 
Uh, that question about like religious identity construction got to be associated with politics. So the kind of question that I ended up asking in my own research that I'm working on now is something like this. Um, what kind of politics, what kind of public action are different kinds of religious persons capable of? So when we become a certain kind of religious person, how do we become capable of acting in public because of our religiosity? So the subtext of that is really what kind of contributions can religious people make to a secular democracy like ours in America today? And the topic that I took up there for the my friends in the Focolare movement was um, what kind of gift they have for this kind of public action in a secular democracy. Mm -hmm. And I got interested in that because by spending a lot of time with them because they were a group, they are a group that I think does a really good job of both being very open to the world, a world of pluralism and fragmentation and tension and excitement and the presence of the incarnate Lord and uh, being very thick, thick in their own practices. They can preserve their own sense of identity while being immersed in this very diffuse and diverse uh, world that we all share. So I wanted to talk with them about what I had learned about their strategies for doing this. How do they become themselves? And then what kinds of things are they capable of when they are truly themselves? So very briefly, one of the things I learned is that they are most themselves when they are really uh, listening deeply to people who are very different from themselves. Mm -hmm. They understand this themselves as a way of uh, imitating Jesus's action in the world. This is, you know, Jesus's kenosis, the self-emptying, self-giving action in the world. They understand this very much in that fashion, but it can look like all kinds of practical things like this quiet attention to somebody who is very different from us and puts a lot of pressure on our own positions or preferences. And they are, in fact, often excellent at entering into these uncomfortable spaces being patient and reverent of the differences that they find there and through that opening up a possibility for mutual understanding and so i tried to unpack the political consequences of people who are able to do something amazing like this for the reasons they can do it the focal are do it for their own reasons so to your point about harmonization or how these uh different charisms sync with one another I was able to notice, I think, because of the particular attention I, w I paid to the Focolare movement, how unique their gift is and how different my own gifts are as a Jesuit. Like, I do something different as a Catholic in the church. So the big picture kind of of all of that, you know, theory that I can very happily get lost in, I will admit, get happily get lost in theory of the whole my whole life. But... One of the, the gifts that this can bring is that I think it helps us understand one of the old images of the church as a kind of a big tent church where God over centuries has produced all of these different saints through our own collaboration with the grace that we're given, of course, right? But has produced all of these different saints who all are trying to imitate one person. They're all trying to imitate Jesus. And in this effort to imitate the same person, to become just like him, they in fact become very different, right? Where Teresa of Avila is not the same as John of the Cross, even though they're both Carmelites and we're friends. Or 
Ignatius Loyola, who lived at the same time and was also Spanish, is very different. And then we can, of course, you know, broaden that out across many cultures and many places. So I think I was able to hope, I hope, uh, share with the Focolare the beauty of their own unique charism, their own strategy. Charism really just being a strategy for imitating the same person, but ironically doing so in a way that makes them different than me rather than the same. Yeah. Uh, again, we're going to put that that video up over on social media. Make sure you go and take the time. It's really well worth the time to go and listen. Before we get too much further in our conversation here today, Father Patrick, I, I wanted to um, maybe clarify something because you're using some terms that I think are very uh, common, so common in our uh, typical nomenclature that we might not invest the time to really think about what you're saying. And because you are um, in sociology and you, I think that you may be using these terms in a way that is specific to, uh, to the academics that we might not have the same definition or, or at least not the complete same definition. So specifically that term is politics uh, because we have a very specific idea culturally of what politics means. But I know from my, uh, my time studying philosophy way back, way back in the day that it was a broader definition and maybe a less charged definition. And I wonder if you might be using it in the same way. So could you unpack for us, what do you mean by politics and what do you mean by public religion? Yeah, those are great questions, TL, and thank you for pulling me back down to the the language of everyday people like I want to be myself, and my parents and my sisters are really good at that too, and so I, I'm grateful for it. Um, yeah, so politics, as everybody knows, I, I I am of the opinion that politics gets a bad rap. You know, really, it's um, it's really difficult for me, the way we talk about politics, you know, that this is something nobody wants to be a part of, or the people play politics, or Really, politics is just a stand-in for like strategies of, man of manipulation, but that's really not what it ought to be. Politics, when we're thinking of it, I think in a Catholic way or certainly in a sociological way, is a way of naming the strategies and the institutions that we as human beings have constructed for caring for one another together, right? So there are lots of different theorists and thinkers who will have different particular definitions of how we do that, what are our strategies for that kind of care. But really politics are just the strategies we have for caring for the common good. And that's the way I certainly want to think about it. And so when I talk about public religion, one of the ways to do that is to think about what are the kinds of strategies that religious persons can bring to um, these, this array of techniques we might have for caring for the common good together. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's kind of what I mean by politics and by public religion. It's when religion doesn't just remain private, you know, like inside our bodies or our minds or, you know, inside the, the den or inside our, you know, our headphones that we're listening to or inside our cars, but kind of goes into the world and does something mm -hmm. powerful, whether that's, you know, uh, advocating for something that we want, protesting, or whether that's building structures of mutual care. So as you were talking about the Focolari, you mentioned that specifically to their charism, they they have these, you, you use the term thick practices, that they were able to maintain their their religious identity and their identity as a, a group within the Catholic faith and not be kind of diluted or diminished by 
the, the political action they're taking or the political group that they're part of. And I bring that up specifically because I feel like specifically in our, in our polarized society, it appears that, that very often people identify based on their political theory, sometimes uh, over and above their religious belonging, uh, that, that they are first and foremost conservative or liberal rather than first and foremost Catholic. Uh, and so by pointing out that the Focolari do this well with these thick practices, I think maybe it highlights some of the difficulty we see in the rest of society. I wonder if you might point out what some of those thick practices might be and how we, as everyday Catholics, might begin to cultivate those so as to wrench our identity out of the political sphere and back to where it should be. Yeah, that's really well put, TL. I wish I had a secret recipe that I could give you know our listeners here for how they can do that. But let me try a couple of things. First, I just want to name how difficult it is. Um, there are so many forces that pull at our attention uh, explicitly and subliminally. So one of the ways I talk about this sometimes with my students is that they are very well aware that the most valuable thing they have to give is their attention and everything wants it. Uh, that's what TikTok wants. That's what their friends want. That's what their classes want. That's what their future jobs are going to want. Attention. Uh, and not just time, but quality of attention. And I'm very convinced that uh, the most effective, you know, media enterprises in our in our time today and, you know, political parties, uh, but also sports teams. Right. Or music fandom. This is Taylor Swift right now. What is what is so what this is so good at doing is uh, drawing our attention by grabbing hold, sometimes from within very gently, sometimes from without. You must look at this grabbing hold of our desires. And we can see all this, you know, there's a reason that pop music is just repetition, right? The, the most addictive, quote unquote, addictive music is the ones that just repeat the same stuff over and over and over again. That's why everybody loves and hates to sing Baby Shark to their children or their nieces and nephews, this kind of stuff, right? But it's there and it's not getting out. But that same pattern of repetition, the power of it and the temptations that it holds can be found in all kinds of things. So this is all just to say the old dictum that everybody knows who's out there listening, that we can say that we are X or Y or Z. I can say I'm a Catholic, right? I can say I'm a teacher. I can say I'm a Jesuit. But really, like, show me what you do and I'll show you who you are. And yeah. that's really what a lot of this stuff comes down to. So I think in some ways, this is the reason that the liturgies are so liturgy is so important for us as Catholics. Um, yes, like I am a priest, I'm a man of the church. I, I really want to be obedient to the teachings of the church. I, I mean that phrase explicitly. In fact, I want to be obedient. Like I desire it and I seek it out, right? The seek out that kind of obedience. But the practice of that, the way I, that moves from something that's in my mind, a statement that I'll make to something that my heart wants is by going. So yeah, look, I... The, this Eucharistic revival, for example, I'm, I'm very interested. Great. This is cool, right? This is very interesting. But to the extent that this is just a clarification of ideas, I'm much less interested. 
I will yeah. be obedient. What the bishops want, I will do. I will go to the events. I will go to the revivals. Like I will not speak against it. I'm very happy to do that. But what I really want from the Eucharistic revivals, right, is an experience of the Eucharist through multiple senses. I want to kneel in the darkness and look at it. And I want to feel it on my tongue. And I want to hold it as I'm celebrating mass, right? I want to hear the sounds of the liturgy. I want to smell the smells. Like that repetition is what the church, you know, our long, long tradition of forming human beings to be religious persons in imitation of Jesus. It's what the church has developed over these years to help us do that, help us live in that kind of imitation. So look, I mean, you named it very clearly, the thick practices, like what they really are, they can be anything. If what you do all the time is listen to Taylor Swift songs or like me, listen to Bob Dylan songs over and over again, who I love immensely, right? That or what we do is play video games or what we do is, you know, watch the Chiefs. Like, I don't know, that kind of stuff, right? NFL on Sundays or college football on Saturdays, like Alabama football is a religion. I'm a big Nebraska Cornhuskers fan. Like that can be a religion for people in this exact sense. But so can Catholicism in exactly the same way. The difference, as you pointed out very clearly, we can tell the difference. It's just St. Paul. By their fruits, we will know them. We can tell very clearly what happens when we give our hearts to these secular liturgies. And we can tell what happens when we give our hearts to the liturgies that the church has cultivated over these times. Like the one leads to peace, unity, friendship, calm, willingness to self-sacrifice. And the others lead to the opposite. So I want to hone in on the Eucharistic revival as a um, as an example of something. And specifically, here we are. We're coming into 2024. That people are getting ready to vote again, right? Whenever people get ready to vote, uh, it seems like there is a frenzy that is ginned up, and all of a sudden neighbor against neighbor, parishioner against parishioner, people who we are in unity and community with, uh, it now becomes a battle of ideas where we see the idea and not the person and everyone gets a little bit worked up. Um, and so I, I've been contemplating, how do we form ourselves in such a way that we can resist those political drawings and move towards that, that focalare idea of unity. And as you mentioned, the Eucharistic revival, it, it brought up again, maybe a pathway forward. Um, because the whole point of the Eucharistic revival is to say, let's not get drawn out in the, in these, um, maybe intellectual ideas about the Eucharist, but let's come again and re-encounter the Eucharist. Uh, and Yes, there are tons of events out there. There's lots of talks that are being given. You've got the big Congress that's coming up in July uh, that they're expecting more than 80,000 people to be at. I'm going to be there. Uh, and if it's just so that we can all get together and pat ourselves on the back and think about a new idea, then there's plenty of other conferences we could do that with. There's plenty of other things that we can do that with. If it's a matter for us all to come together in unity and recognize our unity together and recognize our unity in the Eucharist by coming together and communing together, well then, hey, that's something. So I wonder if if it may also be a time for us, maybe even using this specific instance of unity through the Congress, 
for us to re-examine the ideas and the practices that we are investing in and really step back from them and say, why do I do these practices? Why do I do these things, um, scrolling on TikTok or uh, reading the news every morning or uh, watching CNN on the 24-hour cycle, right? And examine each of those practices to say, are these things that are leading to my unity, leading to my sanctity, or are these things that are distractions from it? Yeah. I think that's the exact right way for us to be thinking about the practices that make up our normal lives. Like in the society of Jesus, right? In the Jesuits, St. Ignatius was rigorous, rigorous about this. So, you know, the, the ideal for Jesuits is that we are to be obedient men of the church and obedient in the hierarchy of the society and then straight obedience to the Pope. So this past year, for example, I went to three uh, final vows celebrations of brothers of mine. Now, these are like the final culmination of the million years of Jesuit formation that everybody hears rumors about. Right. And these uh, these final vows, um, they're beautiful because in public, this man reaffirms his commitment before the Eucharist uh, to life within the church. And then afterwards, there is often um, a fourth vow, a special fourth vow that this man will give to the Pope with regard to missions. So what you have in the Society of Jesus is this strict linking from the Pope to the Superior General of the Society to the provincial of a local place to the man himself where missions can be given. We're going to be obedient to this particular thing. And Ignatius really wanted us to live that obedience, I think, very clearly with our hearts as well as with our minds. How he asked us to, to enact that in our own you know, senses, our own you know, feelings for the world were multiple strategies, but one of the most important ones was something I'm sure you know about and many of our readers will have heard about. He just called it the, the daily examine of consciousness, the examen. And he asked every Jesuit twice a day around lunchtime and at the end of the day to review where they had encountered the Lord in their course of their day and where they had resisted that encounter with the Lord in the course of their day. So where did I find myself creating gaps between my experience of Jesus and where did I find myself saying yes, being obedient to the place of Jesus in our lives. I think if we were all going to do something like an examen of the practices of our lives with regard to whether they produce unity, consolation, peace, willingness to give ourselves to others, humility, I think we could come up very clearly with a sense of which things in our lives are leading us towards a deepening presence of holiness in the world and in our lives, which ones are not. Now, the difficult then part is being willing to step away from the ones that aren't. And I wish I was more willing to do it myself or more capable, I guess, of doing it myself. But I very much agree. So we might think about, you know, everybody there could think about the end of your days today, you're driving around in a car today, you're listening to something on a podcast. You can stop after this or pause this right now if you can. And think very clearly about what are the things I do in my day and are they bringing me closer to the things that St. Paul describes as the presence of the Holy Spirit or not? Individual Catholics can make this judgment. It's very possible for us to do so. And then we have to ask for help from one another, from the church, you know, go to confession, we go back to church, but from our friends and our families, like, help me stop this. Help me do more of that. You bring up something I think that's very important is that we have to have a, a 
a category to be able to to judge against. So you're, you're you've got an end in mind. Is this bringing about unity, humility? Like there's a there's a goal that you have there in order to be able to judge the actions. Because if we're just looking at the specific action, we can say, oh, well, that's good because I'm I'm defending what I believe, even if maybe the way that that person is defending what they believe is leading to uh, to division and and not unity. Yeah. Um, staying with Paul, he also speaks, I think, in uh, as he's speaking to St. Timothy, he says that one of the things we have to be on the lookout for is that people will cast off sound doctrine and gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears long to hear. And I think this is part of polarization that we, we're going to cancel the person who we don't like because they're saying things that are uncomfortable to us. Uh, or that are anathema to us. And we're only going to listen to the people who agree with what we have already decided to believe. So this kind of a confirmation bias. And as we are trying to grow in holiness, I think that we have to include voices that are challenging to us and, and maybe even that we feel are entirely wrong. So that, uh, you know, we have to eventually come to the place where we say, is this, is this idea wrong or am I wrong? And certainly there has to be discernment there, but that, I think that that happens best in community. Oh, without question. When we segment ourselves off into communities that only look exactly like we do, I think that we are poorer for it and more inclined to be led into error through it. Yeah. No, reality the diversity of reality is a gift to us as Catholics. And anytime we get deceived or we're tempted to think otherwise, um, we're on a path away from an incarnate God. Like the, it's been in my prayer lately. The incarnation is just such a scandalous thing. Uh, not just because, you know, Jesus decided to save us in the way that he did or god as the trinity decided to enter in the world as a human being and and the fullness of the weakness that we experience and the joys that we experience it's scandalous to me sometimes because I, well let me say, let me put it this way i rarely get more angry with god than when i have to come face to face with the fact that he decided to save humanity by being willing to die rather than conquer like i just don't understand it sometimes like i'll look at him and i'll be like this cannot have been the plan man like it cannot have been the plan and uh, there's like a, a wryness in my attitude towards him and I, I can smile as i say it because i know that he loves me like i know he will trust me and not be offended by my resistance to him there's a great italian priest who died uh, maybe 20 years ago father luigi giussani and he used to say insistently over and over again, God is not scandalized by our weaknesses, but we are scandalized by them. And that's one of the things we have to be able to face. We have to be able to see. But if we can overcome something like that, accept the weaknesses that we have and move closer to the God who loves us, we'll be in much better shape. We're talking today with Father Patrick Gilger, an associate professor of sociology at Loyola University in Chicago talking about public religion. How do we live out our faith together in unity in the world? There's much more to come right after this break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Father Patrick Gilger, a Jesuit who's an assistant professor of sociology at Loyola University in Chicago and a contributing editor for Culture and America Media. We're talking today about our place in society as Catholics, public religion, and how we live out our faith. Father Gilger, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to be with you, T.L. Yeah, this has been a great conversation already. I'm looking forward to more. There's an exhortation in Scripture to be in the world and not of it. And some people, as they look at the idea of public religion, feel that that might be skirting too close to the of the world. Uh, And there's always this perennial temptation to kind of circle the wagons, to create a subculture of Catholicism whereby we kind of retreat within our own homes or within our own parishes and do our best to raise our children to be righteous and holy, uh, and that be the way that we grow the faith rather than any kind of engagement with the world at large. How would you respond to that idea? We really ought to try our best to look at the world as a gift, look at creation as fundamentally good. One of the things that we can see there is even that pluralism itself can be a great gift to us, but it's not It's not only a gift. It's also a real challenge. It's also a real challenge. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I think I feel very sympathetic to, you know, those of us who are feel drawn towards uh, or uh, fear at the world. Um, The world is really difficult to live in today. It's difficult to be a Christian. It's difficult to be a Catholic today um, because there are so many pressures and forces pushing against us that can make us feel undervalued or can make us feel overlooked or unseen. And I am very reverential towards that kind of stuff. But I also want to say, um, I think that's how Jesus himself felt a lot. You know, he felt overlooked and unrecognized and unseen. And I think the, you know, if we think about what kind of standard can we use to evaluate the quality of our Christianity these days, we can look at his responses in those kinds of situations. And his response is never to distance himself from the world, but instead to continue to love it more fully. You know, that's the, the phrase from the Gospel of John, right? Um, he loved them to the end, right? To the telos, right? To the finish point, but thoroughly all the way through. And that kind of thing is, I think, our task as Christians in the world today in a very difficult world. So I'm very sympathetic to those who feel challenged and feel fearful, feel resistant to loving the world. But honestly, I kind of feel like now is the time when it's exciting to be a Christian and a Catholic in the world. It's like, it's when it's hard to do, when the need is really strong, that I get excited about trying to do it. Like, let's really try to do the thing. Let's love the hard thing. Yeah. Love it. Well, and let's let's not convince ourselves that somehow we're experiencing a more difficult environment than has ever been experienced before. Absolutely We're experiencing not. exactly what the disciples experienced. So I think back to, uh, to the desire for... Um, for there to be power in our religion, that we have some control over what goes on in the world. And I I think back to the disciples who said, hey, these people didn't agree with us. They didn't listen to us. Call down fire on them, right? right. Let's let's do that, Jesus. Let's let's really exert our will on the society around us. Uh, Or of even of Judas, who, as he, there is theory. This is just theological theory that I've heard before, but this idea that 
maybe Judas was thinking, if I turn Jesus over to the authorities, then finally he'll exert his power to show himself as the Messiah that's coming to conquer. And that's one of the reasons we see him despair after the fact, because Jesus didn't do what he was trying to manipulate him into. Now, that's that's not definitive in Scripture, but it's, I think, a, a realistic or, or at least a, a possible read that you could make of that. And I, and I see that all the time as we try to put ourselves in places or in positions or to manipulate the laws of the land such that then finally— will be able to exert the will of God on everyone else around us. And I think that in each of those times and places that we do it, I think that Jesus responds to us the same way he responded to his disciples the first time around. I think that's well put. And, you know, earlier you mentioned the one of the benefits of community, right, of living in this kind of pluralistic world being that it offers us the chance to be corrected in mistakes that we make. And I wanted to say a little something about that from my own experience as a Jesuit. So there are long, you know, Jesuit formation takes forever. Like it's notorious that it takes forever. Like I entered the Society of Jesus when I was 21 years old and I wasn't ordained until I was 33. So, uh, you know, now I'm just over 40 and I've been a Jesuit more than I have not been a Jesuit. So like it's deep in my bloodstream now. And one of the strategies for formation that happens over the time here. Um, is summed up in this this interesting Latin phrase, agere contra, which just means to judge against, agere to judge contra against. And it's used in a really particular circumstance in our own Jesuit formation. So one of the things that happens in the society is that we get to be really well known by our superiors or really bear our hearts before them. So that's part of this obedience that I've come back to over and over again, that I can be obedient to the person who knows me and knows the way God's moving in me. The other thing that happens there is that this person who knows me and knows how God's moving in me, the community, as you mentioned before, right, that might correct me, also knows the way that I characteristically resist grace in my life and challenge can challenge me, therefore, to stop doing that. And that's where the Adjure Contra comes in. So Adjure Contra is like when your superior in the society says to you, stop doing this particular thing that is resisting grace in the world. And that's happened. So that happens to me in my own life. It's happened a couple of times. And I have to say, it's very difficult to start, you know, going against the kind of semi-natural inclinations that I use, the strategies I have for resisting in the world. But that correction that I'm offered by someone who loves me, not by just anyone, but that correction that I'm offered by someone who loves me is really what opens me up to being able to live in a plural world without resentment and without despair, uh, really with hope and with faith and with love. And I can think that this is something that I wish we could do better as a church today, where I wish there were more spaces where we could trust one another yeah. to actually offer a loving correction that opens up our hearts in the same way that Jesus sought to do for his own friends, I think. Well, and I think internally, we are very adept at making excuses for our behavior. Oh, I do that. I've always done that thing. That's just kind of who I am. Pe you know, people will get, you either get me or you don't get me. If you don't, if you don't get me at my, uh, my worst, you don't deserve me at my best kind of thing. And we, we right. make these excuses for ourselves rather than say, Hey, you know what? Maybe, 
this other person has a point as they're pointing this thing out. Maybe it's not awful. Maybe it's not the worst thing in the world, but is it leading me to grace? Is it leading me towards holiness and sanctity? And I look at our, even, even in our communities, we so isolate and, and singularize our communities around um, sameness that we don't have the opportunity to bump up against other people and to have these, these parts of us challenged. Um, yeah. But, but there's so much benefit to being with other people who share the same goals of holiness, but maybe not the same expression of it. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. And I uh, the example that comes to mind here for me is uh, I think in many ways that's what a marriage is, right? Like I do a lot of marriage prep with couples here. Obviously, you know, I'm not married. I've been a celibate for 20 years, like all of this. But there's a there's a, such a joy in being a priest and being able to walk with couples as they're getting ready for marriage. And I, I really love it. I really love listening to them learn how to love each other better. And one of the things I try to say to them over and over again in different ways is that your job really as a husband or as a wife is uh, to be the person who is always able to challenge the way the other person resists love. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing. Like, and the, and the promise of a marriage, the vow of a marriage is that there will always be somebody else there who can open me up to loving better again. Mm-hmm. Help me when I fail at it. Uh, help me learn how to do it better. And as partners change over time, right? You grow and this marriage becomes very different than it was when we were young people or when you are in middle age. But those changes are themselves part of the same process of learning how our hearts can be sanded down. You know, the, mm-hmm. the friction of the relationship actually generates that kind of openness. But it's not just in the privacy of a marriage where that happens. For the Catholic Church, that kind of relationship ought to bear fruit in public. It ought to bear fruit in our political witness in the world. Like, just an imagination. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if the Catholic Church could collectively witness to a kind of vision of the common good that not just had sets of ideals by it, right? Laws that we want to pass, policies that we want to enact, but also ways of interacting with those who disagree with us. Mm-hmm. Like if we could actually have a collective witness to something like that, we could unleash a great power, I think, in the world. I'm actually very hopeful about this. And that hope for me is it flies right in the face of the subtle despair that is always present when I myself or other people say things like, well, that's just the way I am. Mm-hmm. I was just made this way. I'm born like this, right? That kind of thing. There's a subtle despair in that that I feel very resistant to. And I think the church ought to feel resistant to. We ought to hope more in the possibilities for change that we have in the world today, the changes we can make, the changes we can receive from each other. I think one of the ways that we have to to behave in order to get there is to listen more intentionally. Uh, I think we're currently in a place where it is socially acceptable to listen until we get to the buzzword that sets us off and then immediately respond rather than listening more deeply to what's actually being said so that we can respond thoughtfully and charitably to that thing uh, to, and to that uh, really back to that person and not just to the idea. Yeah, no, that's right. And I want to return to my sympathy with the way 
um, with our world today, right? The, I'm sympathetic to the difficulties that we have living in the world today. One of the ways that I name that difficulty is uh, fragmentation. So we, we no longer live in America in a united, coherent America. And, you know, whether we ever had a place like that or not, okay, we can take it or leave it. But certainly we are less, we are less collectively coherent now than we used to be, say, 50 years ago. Now, there are benefits to that openness that has come, but there's also things that we've lost. One of the things that we've lost is this sense of collective stability, that we know how the world is, we know how it ought to be, we know kind of where we're coming from, and we know where we're going. We don't know that stuff anymore. And that can be really scary. And one of the things that this does, this is just a sociological truism, right? When we live in unsettled times, we tend to look for places of security, like islands of security. We tend to isolate ourselves and seek out those who look like us, talk like us, sound like us, are interested in the kinds of things we're interested in. And that itself can contribute to the kind of polarization that you named earlier, TL. And it undercuts, though, that kind of attitude undercuts the possibility for the kind of adre contra I was trying to describe. And what it really means then is it undercuts the possibilities that Jesus has for confronting us about the ways we are resistant to loving the world. And I think we have to do better. Like we have to be able to believe that we can do better. But I know for myself, I am really only willing to be challenged on this kind of thing by people who I trust love me. So my superiors in the Society of Jesus, right? My local bishop, I hope. My friends who are Jesuits. My mother, my father. Like, I know you love me, and therefore I am willing to hear, yeah, you know, you're doing that thing again, Patrick. Yeah, I, I was, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to try to stop. To that end, I think one of the things we have to do is put ourselves in positions, and, and I think a good place to start is within the parish community, because I guarantee there are people who in your parish community who you would disagree with. Uh, to put ourselves in a position within our parish community where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough where we can be loved. Because you can't be loved if you're always behind a, a guard. Yeah. Love requires openness and vulnerability and honesty. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I was just able to spend Christmas with my family who live in Arizona and one of my sisters lives there as well. She has two little boys. She and her husband have two little boys. Uh, the littlest one is almost three. And um, he's just amazing. He's just an amazing little kid, you know, super smart, funny, bouncing off the walls, you know, knocking things down and all that kind of stuff, a classic little boy. And he's also very tender um, and he really likes touch. You know, he wants to be held. And I love that. You know, I love getting to be with him. And every parent or uncle, grandparent knows the experience of, you know, when you're holding a child and they get a little tired and then they start squirming like that. They're just like, they're resisting their own tiredness. And then if you can, they'll be, you can be patient with them, right? And love them. There'll be a moment where they stop resisting and their whole body kind of relaxes. Like it, it breathes out the tension and they just settle into you, you know, and that got to, I got to experience that. I got to experience that just a couple of times over Christmas. And it's such a joy to be able to hold my nephew when in that moment, when he lets himself be held. Mm -hmm. And I really think that metaphor is an apt one for the American Roman Catholic church at the moment is that I wish we could stop squirming and stop resisting the ways 
uh, the, our own tiredness and our our tendencies towards despair and let ourselves be held by the God who loves us and breathe out that tension. Yeah. And in the breathing out, just look around at the world around us, which is broken and love it in its brokenness. Well, let me, let me take that just a little bit younger because I have a child that is uh, 10 months now and he's yeah. at that stage where, you know, he will, you hold him and, and he's tired and then he'll start to, to wrestle and resist the tiredness. But he fights it so hard that he gets to a place where he is overtired and then he is inconsolable and in despair. And I think yeah. that if you find yourself inconsolable and in despair about the things that are going on in the world, this is the time to rest. Go spend some time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Spend time in adoration. Find a silent retreat. Do something to remove yourself from the distractions and the the agitations that are in the world and recenter and rest and find that there is something to be restored and the world is not so desperate as it feels at the moment. I think that's right, TL. You know, I've been rereading uh, Joseph Pieper, right? The, the famous philosopher, Roman Catholic philosopher, and his most famous book is about leisure. And one of the things that he points out in there is that we can tell a lot about ourselves and what we actually take to be valuable in our lives like really what our thick practices hold up as most valuable. We can tell a lot about that by looking at what kind of leisure we pursue and what we do with our free time. So we can tell whether what we are doing is just, you know, recreation or ignoring tension, or if it's just like, well, I don't want to deal with this pressure at the moment. So I'm going to go, you know, play these video games or I'm going to go, you know, go for a, a run or I'm going to, you know, get on my exercise bike or whatever it might be or all that kind of stuff. Or even just like listening to the same media over and over again. Not yours, of course, TL. Outside the walls oh, is always course. an act of leisure. All right. This is the, that's the key. But what we really do, we can tell what the, what the, what we hold as most valuable by paying attention to what we are doing with our leisure and what that does to us. Mm -hmm. The things that actually restore us when you talk about going on a retreat yeah. or taking time away. The things that actually restore our souls are the things that we ought to be pursuing such that we can not withdraw from everything. We are not sectarians. We're yeah. not, you know, you know, we do not withdraw into the private sphere as Catholics that we have to be able to be responsible in a loving way for the world. And that does take a real leisure that restores rather than is just, you know, ignoring the tensions that we feel. Yeah. What a pleasure to talk to you today. We've been speaking with Father Patrick Gilger, a Jesuit assistant professor of sociology at Loyola University, Chicago. We've got a link to his talk that he gave for the Focolari over on our social media. Father, thank you so much for being with us. A great pleasure to be with you and with your listeners, TL. If you missed any part of my conversation with Father Patrick Gilger, or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friend on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you want more, there there is more. First and foremost, we have a, a wonderful talk that he gave available over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Uh, and then if you are looking for more to this conversation, well, go over to our Patreon over at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the Patreon link there in the menu, and there you will find extra segments that we make each and every week for all those who support the show through Patreon. Now, Let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. 
That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading from scripture today comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. That reading again comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. This is one of those passages that Paul is in rapid fire answering the question, how as Christians should we order our lives and our dispositions towards society and towards one another so that our faith is evident in what we do? And this shows up throughout the letters of Paul, where you've got this little section of just kind of bullet points. How should we order our lives? How should we live in a way that our Christian faith would be made manifest and evident to all who are around us? And in each of these letters, as he gives these bullet points, which vary from letter to letter, depending on the needs of that community, each of them seems to be focused first and foremost, on love as the center. And of course, that makes sense because love is the first and the second greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we live out that law of love, every other law takes care of itself. But not only is love central to Paul, but here we see a preference for the other. Love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I I need to be showing honor to the other person more than they're showing it to me. Uh, to contribute to others, to bless those who persecute me, to be outwardly focused, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to be outwardly focused, to weep with those who weep, to be present and outwardly focused, to live in a harmony with one another. Each of these things is putting our eyesight and our preference and our focus on the person in front of us and not the person in the mirror. And then as he closes it out, he he does that even one step further. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all. The only way to do that is to deny our own selfishness and to lift up the other to seek the common good. But what form does that take? Well, the church has written extensively on that, and I'm going to put a link to this also on social media. If you've never read the Vatican II document Gaudium et Spes, 
It's a little bit lengthy, but I encourage you to do it because there's so much in that letter pointing to our responsibility towards the world in pursuing the common good. Uh, But our reading today, uh, along those same lines, a little bit older, comes from a sermon by Blessed Isaac of Stella. Why, brothers, are we so little concerned to seek one another's well-being, so that where we see a greater need, we might show a greater readiness to help and carry one another's burdens? For this is what the blessed Apostle Paul urges us to do in the words, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And also, support each other in charity, for this surely is the law of Christ. Why can I not patiently bear the weaknesses I see in my brother, which, either out of necessity or because of physical or moral weakness, cannot be corrected? And why can I not instead generously offer him consolation? As it is written, their children shall be carried on their shoulders and consoled upon their knees. Is it because I lack that virtue which suffers all things, is patient enough to bear all, and generous enough to love? This is indeed the law of Christ, who truly bore our weaknesses in his passion and carried our sorrows out of pity, loving those he carried and carrying those he loved. Whoever attacks a brother in need or plots against him in his weakness of whatever sort surely fulfills the devil's law and subjects himself to it. Let us then be compassionate toward one another, loving all our brothers, bearing one another's weaknesses, yet ridding ourselves of our sins. The more any way of life sincerely strives for the love of God and the love of our neighbor for God's sake, the more acceptable it is to God, no matter what be its observances or external form. For charity is the reason why anything should be done or left undone, changed or left unchanged. It is the initial principle and the end to which all things should be directed. Whatever is honestly done out of love and in accordance with love can never be blameworthy. May he then deign to grant us this love, for without it we cannot please him, and without him we can do absolutely nothing. God, who lives and reigns forever. Amen. That reading again comes from a sermon by Blessed Isaac of Stella. In this beautiful sermon, I see four things. One, that we must be about community. Two, that we must be generous and loving to those who are around us, merciful to their weaknesses. Three, stringent with our own weaknesses, pursuing holiness and ridding ourselves of sin. And four, acknowledging that all of this can only be done through the indwelling presence of Christ Jesus with us. That's all the time we have for today's show. Today's show is brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link to learn more. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. Threads the handle is at StepOutsideTheWalls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.